Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. I thought Joe and Eleanor were going to be gone for a while, but apparently they got tired of one another and decided to come home. Welcome home. Joe's in the... Oh, there he is. There's Joe. And Stephen and Seaver, where are you? Welcome home. We missed you. Yeah. Would you all open up to Psalm 46? Psalm 46. And let's stand as we read it. Psalm 46. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth at song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations make an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So you know that originally the chapters and the verses, numbers, were not in the inspired text of Scripture, right? And so you wonder about things like this at the head of a chapter. Is this inspired text or was this something added? And this is inspired text of Scripture. So since all scriptures God breathed, this is profitable, this is helpful. Now what would be helpful of the preface which says, for the choir director or the director of music, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth? Well, first of all, it's appropriate for us to know that the people of God in their worship had a choir director. Now, why is that important? Well, we live in a community here where lots of you came into this church from the music school. And the music school runs on the fuel of pride and vanity. You musicians, am I right? Okay. I remember the time when Don Spady, Wagner at, Wagner at the time, she was getting all the, the, the soprano roles in the operas, you know, the, the diva with the blonde hair who has a beautiful voice, and Don would get them all. And so you go to an opera, and there Don would star, right? 
And then one day Dawn came in my office and she said, I want to quit singing. And I said, why? And she said, because it's all self-promotion. It's all vanity. It's all pride. And she said, the people that get positions are people that know how to promote themselves and I'm just sick of it. Now, by God's grace, Dawn didn't stop singing, right? She still is our songbird. But if you can imagine how it is that people that live in that environment day after day, in the practice rooms, you know, doing recitals, having people cheer and clap, having other people let you know that you're not as good a violinist as they are, you know, and who gets, you know... It would get so tiring that you would think that you don't want any music in church, right? So you, is any of you remember Marcos Cavalcante? You remember Marcos, Brazilian guitarist? So Marcos was in church here, and we needed a guitarist. And Marcos said, I'm not going to play guitar in church. Why not? He said, because in America, the guitarist is a god. And I don't want to be a god in worship. I want to be able to sit there and not have to be a god. Curtis Cook, for a while, wanted us to not have, if I remember correctly, I think it was you, maybe it was Carol, I don't know, but Curtis wanted the choir to sing up in the balcony. You remember back at Winslow Road. Curtis wanted to not be seen as he sang. And so I said, why? And they said, because we don't want to perform. And so what am I doing right now? I'm performing. I mean, even the hunched up shoulders and the hands, it's a performance, right? But it's helpful, isn't it? You know, this is better than even I am performing, you know? What am I doing now? I mean, you see, we can't get around this stuff, guys. God made us flesh. God gave us personalities. Some of us are are loud, and some of us are proud. And some of us are both loud and proud. God is pleased to work with us through flesh and blood that's sinful. And so what happens is musicians say, how about if we go up into the balcony? And I say, okay, fine, you can go up in the balcony and I'll be up there preaching. Well, no, we want you in front. Oh, okay, so why don't you serve us by allowing us to look at you and why don't you discipline your pride? You see? And so what happens in the church is you get into all these arguments about music and church. It's because of vanity, it's because of pride, it's because of competition, it's because... It's very, very emotional, and so we think we should remove that from the service so we're not manipulative. And pretty soon you have people who believe that there should never be any singing in church that isn't done by the entire congregation where everybody can hear everybody else's voice. And so I want you to note that it says here, for the choir director, and then it says what? A psalm of the sons of Korah. So there were Levites who were singled out to be musicians, And so there's specialization. And this is what the church is, because the church has different gifts. And some have the gift of music. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody that says they have the gift of music should be allowed to use their gift. When I grew up in college church, there was a woman there who claimed she had the gift of singing solos as a soprano, and she didn't. And it was awful. 
And every time you saw her and you saw the name in the bullets and everybody would go, and you just wished there was a leader in the congregation who had the guts to tell her she did not have the gift of solos. I went to 10th Pres recently. And there was a woman who sang a solo at 10th Press's morning worship, and she no longer had the gift of singing. She did it one time, I'm sure. And an awful lot of the work of leadership in a church is to tell people who think they have a certain gift that that actually is not their gift. Their gift is actually cleaning the toilets. Now, why do I say cleaning the toilets? Well, have you ever had anybody come up to you and say, I have the ministry of cleaning toilets? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Has anybody ever heard? I mean, Jurgen says after the fact that he had that gift, but you know. And so, in the Old Testament, in the worship of the people, there was a group called the Sons of Korah. They were a part of the tribe of Levites. They had the gift of music, and there were praise songs, which is what this is, written for them to perform. And then we have this. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah, and then we have set to Alamoth. Now, what's set to Alamoth? Well, the best guess is that this is to be performed by the young virgin women. It's, it indicates a high pitch, a high frequency, high voice. Now, how would that be helpful for you to know that this particular psalm is to be performed by the young virgins, by high-frequency voices? All right, are you ready? Okay, here we go. This is Andrew Bonar. Who's Andrew Bonar, Jody? Tell him. A Scottish minister who... Well, he wrote a lot of hymns. He wrote a lot of hymns. And so he's looking at this, and here's what he says. About this psalm, even the feeble virgins may in that day sing without dread. Now, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. Even feeble virgins may sing confidently in the day of danger. In other words, look, if things are dangerous and we're fearful, and we have young virgins leading us in our worship singing this hymn, doesn't that typify the vulnerability of the people of God before the evil of this world? Come on, can't we please think about the character of sexuality? It's helpful that it's for the virgins to sing. Because when they get up in front of us, everybody's like, yep, that's how vulnerable I am as a Christian. Yep, that's how difficult it is for me to live in the face of cancer. And you have the most, I mean, why does everybody like the children's choir singing? And immediately you're going to tell me why everybody likes the children's choir. <laughs> and the reason is, out of the mouths of babes and suckling, thou hast ordained praise. There is an innocence and a vulnerability about children that allows us to enter in without feeling like we have to protect ourselves from their pride. Am I right? Okay. 
So, before we even get into the text of the psalm, we have very helpful things. It's good to have specialization. That's not wrong. Okay? There are certain people who have the gift of music, and they should give their gift to the church freely without demanding that we put them up in the balcony. It's more helpful for them to be up front. Number three, there are times where you even have a certain group within a certain group. So the sons of Korah within the Levites, who are set apart for another specialization. And so we have Phil generally specializing in, in, in proud music and Jody specializing in humble music. Where's Phil? I mean, it's basically true. Come on. And which do you like better, Phil or Jody? <laughs> when, Heather was, when Heather was a little girl, I once said to her, Heather, who do you love more, mommy or daddy? And she looked at me, and she looked at Mary Lee, and she said, Daddy, that's a bad question. <laughs> In this church, actually, Phil has to be more humble than Jody. But look... Specialization isn't bad. And then you get to the specialization of taking certain songs and saying, this is for the young virgins to sing. And then we're free to think, why would the young virgins sing this? God is what? Our refuge and strength. And you have young women singing it. God, you know, very high. God is our refuge and they typify vulnerability. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? All right, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge. Refuge is defensive and strength. Strength is offensive. So God is not just the one we hide ourselves behind, but God is also the one that gives us boldness like a lion to oppose evil. He is both our refuge and our strength. And then he is a present help in trouble. But that's not what it says. It says a very present help. And that kind of seems weird, you know, that you would say a present help and then say a very present help. I don't think any of us would use that construction in our normal language. But God wants us to understand he's not just present, he's very present. He's very, very present. And of course, there is a need for that when God is invisible. And he's reminding us that he's not absent. He is very present. And he's specifically very present when? In a time of trouble. And of course, this is very true. Uh, my parents said they were never as certain of the love of God as when they walked away from a fresh grave of one of their children. A very present help. Many of you understand when I say that the times that I have most known the presence of God are the times that I have most suffered. Often because of my sin, and certainly always because of my sin or somebody else's sin. Even cancer is the result of the fall. But when we're in trouble, God is able to be felt and touched and heard in a way when, you know, everything's going, as they say, swimmingly. <laughs> it, 
it just doesn't work because what happens? Well, you become like Israel where they come into a land flowing with milk and honey where they don't have to plant the trees. They don't, you know, God removes all the enemies and God says to them beforehand, you will then forget me. And so God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, so therefore is because of what came before, then this. Because he is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time and trouble, therefore we will not, what? Fear. We won't fear. We will be fearless. You know, how many of you think that if your relatives were asked whether you are fearless, they would say yes? I think a lot of you would have relatives that say that you live paralyzed by fear. But if we believe that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble, we will be fearless. Now why? Well, because if you fear God, you can't fear anything else because the fear of God swallows all other fears. Why? Because God is God. God does not allow room for you to have glory and him having glory. God is jealous of his own glory. God is not interested in having you fear the political correctness police on the campus of IU and him at the same time. God's not interested in you fearing the child protective services and him at the same time. He wants you to fear him. And fear is something that doesn't allow you to fear in two directions. Fear only allows you to fear in one direction. So you either fear God and you're fearless towards this world and men, or you fear your parents, your relatives, you fear your professors, you fear your boss, you fear your wife, (laughs) and there's no fear of God. You'd be amazed how easy it is to read fear. I remember one time... um, counseling a certain couple and we've been counseling them for quite a while and they had a major decision to make and I knew what he wanted Mary Lee knew what she wanted and Mary Lee and I both knew what she and he wanted and then finally they made the decision and they asked to have lunch with us and we went to McCree's this was years ago sat in a booth Mary Lee and I across from him and he then proceeded to tell us that the decision had been made and that they were going to do And he didn't put it this way, but they were going to do what she wanted, all right? So he says, we're going to move to such and such a place, and and this is how we feel the Lord is leading us, and this is the right decision. He's going on and on. And as Mary and I watch him, his wife is sitting here, and as we watch him, he he says, "Uh, my wife and I have decided that we're going to uh, do such and such, and and, and that's what God, God wants us. And it just goes... And he just keeps looking at her. He's, he's petrified of his wife. And he gets done giving us the spiel, the sales pitch. And I said to him, brother, fine. That's fine for you to do what you've announced you're going to do. But don't tell us you're doing it because it's what God wants. Because all your eye contact is telling us you're doing it because it's what your wife wants. 
No, 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 she didn't have anything to do with this. You know, it's like, you know, I said, I said, look, your head just keeps looking at your wife to see if she's upset or likes what you're saying. I said, you know, your head is saying more than your lips. Our fear is very clear to people, and the Bible says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore what? We will not fear. We won't fear. So we'll be fearless. We'll be fearless. Now, does this mean we'll be stupid? Does this mean that we'll be flippant? Does this mean that we won't calculate risks? No, you can calculate risks and be fearless. So Taylor and Reza had a little baby. This is my son and my daughter-in-law, and the baby was named Jackson. And about two days after the baby was born, I was talking to Taylor, and Taylor said, Dad, you know why we named him Jackson? And I said, well, I hope I know why. And he said, it's, it's for Stonewall Jackson. And I said, that's what I'd hoped. So what do you know about Stonewall Jackson? Well, Stonewall Jackson was a great general in the Civil War. He was for the wrong side, the South, right? When Rita Cuffey died, one of our mothers in Israel, Rita was sit. well, she didn't die immediately, but she was sitting at a table when she had her attack, and she was reading the biography of Stonewall Jackson by R.L. Dabney, his aide-de-camp. What do we know about Stonewall Jackson? Well, number one, he was a Presbyterian. Isn't that good? Not a Baptist. He was a Presbyterian, right? <laughs> That's a joke. Um, but Stone... Who is that? Was it you? <laughs> yeah, you have, you have uh, very loud hisses. Um, Stonewall Jackson was a general, and he was fearless. He was absolutely fearless. And the most well-known saying that he had was that he said that he was as, as, as peaceful at the front of the battlefield as he was in bed. Because he said every single day of his life was allotted by God from the very beginning, and he would not die whether he was in bed or on the battlefield until God said it was time for him to die. When Joe and Eleanor and Meryl and I were at their family uh, plot at the cemetery in Pennsylvania a couple days ago, and we were walking around looking at, uh, at, at the gravestones, it was a beautiful day, up on a ridge, gorgeous. And we got to the section of the cemetery that was old. So these people were born somewhere around 1750 and died oftentimes somewhere around 1825. And as you got into the old part of the cemetery, there was often a script about that wide at the bottom. And the script said, um, so many years, so many months, and so many days. And it was all written out. Why did they do that? Well, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty certain it's a testimony to the truth that God says that before one of our days comes to exist, every one of them that is allotted to us in Psalm 139. God says that there's no such thing as an accidental death, that he has arranged every single day, and we will not die until we have lived 
every day allotted to us by God before one of our days came to exist. And this is what Jackson said. And so Jackson was known, he is without question the American general of all the generals we've had as a nation who was known for being absolutely fearless. That is the singular distinguishing mark of Stonewall Jackson. And so it's very interesting how he died. Do you know how he died? Friendly fire. He was on the battlefield and one of his soldiers killed him. By mistake. And so you think, oh, what a tragedy, what a waste. But that's not what Jackson would say. Jackson would say, no, I lived every single day that God had allotted me. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Now, when will we not fear? Well, therefore... We will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Can you imagine anything that's more cataclysmic, catastrophic, scary than watching a mountain fall into the sea? You know, if you're next to a glacier and the glacier just caps, it's scary. But imagine a huge mountain falling into the sea. And that's what's singled out by God to tell us that precisely then we're not to be afraid. Okay? Though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, though it's, excuse me, into the heart of the sea, though the sea's waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah. Isn't that something? The most catastrophic things that could hit the earth. And these are the times when we're not to be afraid. And then you come to this signal, Selah. And this is what, um, this is what Charles Spurgeon, uh, pastor of Tab, Joe and Eleanor, where they used to go to church in the 1800s, a wonderful Baptist preacher. This is what he says about that little word, Selah, that you just, you just, you don't even think about, Right? He says, in the midst of such a hurly-burly, now what is hurly-burly? Hurly-burly is a, I think, distinctly British term that means hubbub, like loud commotion. You know, us here before the call to worship, us here after the benediction. But if, if the kids could bring the balls in and play while we're trying to talk. That would be a hurly-burly, okay? In the midst of such a hurly-burly, and he's referring here to the mountains falling into the sea, all right? In the midst of such a hurly-burly, the music may well come to a pause, both to give the singers breath, allow the singers to stop and catch their breath, and ourselves time for meditation. We are in no hurry, but can sit us down and wait while the earth dissolves and the mountains rock and the oceans roar. You see? Christians are fearless. And so precisely at the time when the mountains are falling in the sea, what does the Christian do? The Christian sits down, he's quiet, and he meditates. Okay? 
Ours is not the headlong rashness which passes for courage. Did you hear me? Okay, that's your son talking to you here. Headlong rashness that passes for courage, all right? We can calmly confront the danger and meditate upon terror. Isn't that something? Have you ever thought in terms of it being the Christian's duty to meditate on terror? Dwelling on its separate items and united forces. The pause is not an exclamation of dismay, but merely a rest in music. We do not suspend our song in alarm, but we tune our harps. Again, with deliberation amidst the tumult of the storm. <laughs> the image I have is Jody, as the mountains falling in the sea, he takes the capo off, and he begins to tune his guitar. It were well if all of us could say, Selah, under tempestuous trials. But alas, too often we speak in our haste, we lay our trembling hands bewildered upon the strings... We strike the lyre, another musical instrument, with a rude crash. And then he says this, we mar the melody of our life song. That's something. <coughs> Sorry. What a beautiful picture of our temptations when God sends suffering to us. We start talking just to hear our voices. We start coming out with all this blather, this Christian blather. I hate it. Where somebody is scared or depressed or angry at God and they come out with all this blather this talk, this cheap talk, as if they've already gotten to heaven. And they're not suffering because they just know that, that God... You know? And I'm supposed to act as if it's true. And I know it's not true because it comes out so easily, so cheaply. You know what I'm saying? And people think that that's a Christian witness. What's Christian witness is for the one that God's hand is on to be quiet. Selah. Now, think of great as thy faithfulness, right? What comes right before it? Is this, it's just this unbelievable, hellacious suffering of, you know, he's got gravel in his teeth, and then it comes... It is good. So all this suffering, and then it says, it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit under it. And then it says, you know, perhaps the Lord will have mercy. And it says, let him be quiet and wait on the Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. Thy mercies are new every morning. It really pains me how many Christians think that the point of the Christian life is to lie. And so preachers are supposed to lie in the pulpit, and Christians who suffer are supposed to lie to everybody else. Why? Because we want to escape the weight of life. And what's the weight of life? The weight is suffering. So we don't want Rachel to cry, 
and we don't want to mention her, her, her husband. We don't, want to, we don't want to remember death. We don't want to go to the nursing home. We don't want to think about the widows. We don't want to think about the divorcees. We don't want to think about Bob, and we sure as heck don't want to have to try to listen to him. It's so broken, right, Bob? <laughs> wake up, Susie, wake up. <laughs> he doesn't know what I just said. So he has cerebral palsy, and it's extremely difficult to figure out what he's saying, and it's gotten more difficult, and so we don't want to take the time to do that. And so to cover it all up, we just act as if we're going from victory to victory to victory. And the word is sila. Stop. And you remember how this psalm ends? The psalm ends with, be still and know that I am God. So are smartphones a blessing or a curse? Is there any place in your life now, even the laboratory, the restroom, where you are still and that you know that God is God? You got the laptop, you got the smartphone, you've got... And there's no stillness, there's none at all. How does God teach somebody who will never shut up? And so we have no idea of the glory of God because we're all fixated on our own glory and trying to cultivate it on Facebook. You know, copying postures and presenting ourselves in the best possible light and telling people about our aspirational cooking and our aspirational child rearing and our aspirational music taste and, and the movies that we think are impotent or important. And where is there room for God? Where could God even speak to us? Be still and know that I am God. And we think, you know, God, God reveals himself best to people that are active. And it's not because we're working. You know, that there is truth to that. But it's because we're doing Facebook. It's because we're studying. We, we study so hard, we're absolutely stupid and useless. You know? You really think school makes you useful? I mean, in one sense, yeah, it does, right, David? It, it does, yeah, 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 yeah. But you know what Mark Twain said about schooling? He said, don't ever let schooling get in the way of an education. Okay? And so you're so busy, so intent on packaging yourself on Facebook, sending out tweets, getting on the phone and talking, you know, reading the news, studying, talking to the professor, getting your degrees, practicing your violin, you're so busy that you're never still and you never know God. Because God speaks with a quiet voice, all right? Be still and know that I am God. And that's what Charles Spurgeon said is the point of the seal, which comes at the end of every third of this psalm. 
Though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, what's the difference between the sea churning and waves and, and then a river? Well, the difference is that the sea is just unbelievably turmoil. You know, it's like, it's completely wild, right? Remember the Perfect Storm movie? It's wild, you know, it's 30 foot, 60 foot, 90 foot, 150 foot waves. Nobody's ever been out on the sea, has small thoughts about the sea. But a river is quiet. And a river is disciplined between its banks and it goes in a steady direction. And so it says here, after the the churning of the roaring and the foaming of the sea, the mountains quaking at the sea's swelling pride, then it says there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. So God is order. God is not just disorder. God is order. And God's streams and his rivers satisfy us. Now, if you can imagine that you're in an arid land, a desert land like the Mideast, like Palestine, and you talk about rivers and streams comforting the people of God, you understand that Jesus, when he came, he said, I am the living water, right? Water is a very good thing, but there's another thing here that we're not used to thinking of being as good. And what is it? Well, it says, there is a river, verse 4, whose streams make glad the city of God. I don't think it was until I was probably in my middle 40s that I realized that wilderness in Scripture is bad and cities are good. Because I had completely bought into the cultural thing of our culture, which is that wilderness is good and cities are bad. And so, you know, you've got the Sierra Club, you've got, you know, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, you've got pristine Alaska where uh, nature, red in tooth and claw, is free to do her thing. And so we just, you know, wilderness is good, cities are bad. Cities are bad because man is bad. And so where man isn't, that's where good is. So the goal of most intellectuals in the Western world is to try to get there be fewer men and more mountain lions who rip other animals apart. (laughs) How did we get there? Well, we got there because Satan hates life, and he especially hates the life of the animal that has the image of God, which is man. And so all of our attempts now are to flip upside down what God said, which is, it is good, And he gave us animals to eat. And so everybody now wants to get rid of man and everything man creates, and especially carbon emissions, right? Right? Anthropogenic global warning. In other words, man produced. And so we think of cities as being bad. We think of wilderness as being good. Unless, of course, you're a church planner who's hip and drinks craft beer, and then they're in the city for the city right? But that's a certain small group. And no Jew in New York thinks cities are good. You just can't imagine not living in the city. Right? So why does scripture always say cities are good? Well, because scripture says that man is made in the image of God, and scripture says that man should have a place of safety. 
And you think, well, no, it's in the city that all the murders happen. You go out into the bucolic countryside, and that's where a man is free to be safe. And you know, I used to think that way because I grew up in the city. And then I, I moved into a little town of 1500. And it was so bucolic. It was so peaceable. It was so picturesque. But I was the pastor. <laughs> and so every secret in that town, I found out. And let me tell you something. There's just as much sin in a little town of 1,500 as there is in a city of 25 million. Little towns. My wife and I often, when we're driving through a little town at dusk, right when the lights come on and they're still like glowing and warm, you know, before the television has come on and changes the color of the front window, you know, and we go through and we look at each other and we say, it's not true. Because we know what we're thinking. Oh, it's so cute. Can't you imagine the joy behind that picture window? <laughs> you know, it's like, we say, nope, we've lived here and it's not the way it looks, right? The city is spoken of positively in scripture because the city is the place that has the gates, the city is the place that has the walls. The city is the place where the elephant doesn't trample you to death. You know that you can chart the growth and decline of population in Africa, this is what the textbooks do, by the degree to which the, the, the elephants were marauding the villagers. And the population declines, and then the elephants are taken care of. You've all watched the videos in, in, in India, right? of the marauding elephants in the villages, right? Until recently, people were fearful of the animals, right? And so the city has walls, the city has gates. What else does the city have? The city has fellowship. The city has food. The city has water. The city has other people that you can be friends with and eat dinner with. The city has pubs which in England are wonderful. The dog comes in, the dog lies in front of the coal fire, and you sit there and have beer. And you talk about the day's work and, and tomorrow's weather. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the, ho the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. And so we're not just talking about any city. We're talking about the city of God. Think of Augustine's book right after the sacking of Rome. Where he talks about Rome's idolatry and wickedness and the church of Jesus Christ. And he juxtaposes wickedness and righteousness. And he talks at great length about the distinction between the barbarians and the Romans and their idolatry and Christians. The city of God. God is in the midst of her. And so her people are holy. Her people rescue the children from the abortuaries and from the banks of the rivers. Okay? Her people love their wives and their wives honor their husbands. Her people have children who honor their parents. 
Her people forgive one another. Her people discipline sin and encourage righteousness. The city of God. And the earth has nothing like it. And where is the city of God today? Well, it's also called Zion. The city of God is here. It is the church of Jesus Christ, which surrounds us with walls to protect us. And which has gates to welcome us. And which has fathers and mothers to rebuke and teach and admonish and exhort us. And brothers and sisters to sit and have a beer with, without being alcoholics. Or chocolate cake and milk. Or for some of you, you poor things, something without gluten. I pity you. (laughs) Come on, laugh. It's funny. All right. And so this is the city of God here today. We have our food. We have the food of the word of God. We have brothers and sisters in Christ that love us. Despite our sin, we have everything we need. And this is where God dwells. The holy dwelling place is the most high. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And so you think, well, why does it say the city of God will not be moved? Well, think of what's gone on in Indiana in the last month. And we know that Indiana is just representative of the entire Western world. The entire Western world is going to make it a crime for me to call homosexually inclined, tempted people to repent. (coughs) Theoretically, I can still call adulterers to repent, but I can't call homosexuals to repent. I'll be put in prison for doing it. And so we think that we're being moved. We're not being moved. What's our dependence? Our dependence is on the laws of the state of, the state of Indiana or the United States. <coughs> We're not dependent on the First Amendment, are we? Hmm? We're not going to be moved. Why? Because I, I submit to you as a congregation when you tell me, do not scratch our itching ears. And you submit to God in saying every single word of this scripture is true. And we don't want one word taken out. Give it to us straight, Tim. Where's the beef? Okay? And so we're not going to be moved. The nations make an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. In other words, President Obama tells us that we can't tell our children to repent of being homosexual. God will melt him. Not because I'm a Republican. I'm not a Republican. Not because I'm making a political statement. He's opposing God's law. And it doesn't matter. He's the head of the greatest nation in the world in terms of military power and finances and everything. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Anybody who sets himself against God will be melted. The earth will be melted. The heavens will be melted. We will not be moved. Not because we're stubborn, but because we're faithful. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. In the face of the wicked rulers, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord. 
who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, he cuts the spear in two, he burns the chariots with fire. Well, these are the instruments of war. So today it would be the Trident submarine, it would be the B-1 bomber, it would be, you know, M-16, the Marines. He takes the Marines and he just twists them in half and then buries them underground and they're silent. God's not bothered by American military might. He takes our missiles, he takes our planes, he takes everything, and he, they're like toothpicks to him. Okay? He makes wars cease. And then verse 10, cease striving. And... Another way of translating it, most of you know it this way, is what? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. About 10 or 15 years ago, when my mother was still alive, I don't know why we were talking about it, but one day we were talking about my brother Johnny, or not Johnny, Danny, who died. And so Danny was four years old, got leukemia. They took him to Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. They were treating him. <clears throat> and my mother and father were relatively new Christians. And they said, well, the Bible says that you should anoint him with oil and pray that he'll be healed. And so we're going to do that. So the elders came in, they anointed Danny with oil, and they prayed that he would be healed. Well, Danny went into remission. And they were convinced that God had answered the prayer and that he was healed. So they went down to Children's Hospital and they thanked all the doctors and all the nurses for their care. And they said, we won't be needing you anymore because our son has been healed by God. We asked God to heal him and God healed him. So my mother and I were talking about Danny and she was in her mid-80s at this point. And I don't, know, I don't know why she did this, but she said, you know, she said when Danny was in remission, there were two women, single women from our church, who came over to help me in the kitchen. I don't know whether they were cooking or doing dishes or what they were doing, and we were standing there working. And she said, the two women said to me, Mary Lou, Danny has been healed. And she said, I said to them, what? And they said, Danny has been healed. And I said, well, how do you know that? And they said, because... God said he'd healed Danny, and he's healed him. And I said, are you sure? And they said, yes, God has healed him. And then she was silent, and then she said, and then Danny died. So about a year after he went into remission, he started bleeding, hemorrhaging, and within, I think, a day or two, we kept him at home. He never went back to the hospital. He just died. I remember it very clearly. You know, I was one year younger. And, and uh, so my mother tells me this story, these two women, and then she says, and then Danny died. And then it's silent. I don't know how many of you remember my mother, a very, very, very strong woman. <laughs> and so I said to Mud. Um, why did you tell me this story? 
And she was quiet for a second. I have, to, I have to put this back together. And she said this. She said, are you ready? She said, God is God. Now, it wasn't with my voice. It was with hers. But it was that intense. And it was loud. God is God. And so I've heard the story, and then I've heard that he died, and then I've asked her the meaning, and she says, God is God. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm a pastor. You know, I know you, Mud. I knew Danny. I don't get it. So I was quiet for a second. I said, Mud, it seems like that doesn't follow. You know, what do you mean God is God? Why did you say that after you said he died and after you said they were sure he was healed? And then she said this. She said, we are not. And I thought, oh, I'm so glad I had the mother I had that didn't think she should lie to me about the sovereignty and providence of God. What she was saying was, as Christians, oh, we think we can just jack God around. He's like a game of battleship. You know, you put your destroyer here and you put this there. And, and if you just know the, the science and life with the key to the scriptures that the evangelical publishers put out, and you put this thing here and you go to that school and you just, you know, it's just like getting a degree at IU. You know, you, you almost can't fail if you study on Sunday afternoon. And then all of a sudden, your son dies. And all the good Christians have told you he'll never die because you prayed that he'd be healed. You went down to the hospital, you told him your son wouldn't die. You didn't need him anymore. And then your son dies. And then your, your son, years later, says, Mud, what, what are you saying? She says, God is God. And you say, that's a non sequitur. I don't follow. We are not we're not what? Oh, we're not God. Okay, God is God. We're not. Oh, I get it. Be still and know that I am God. <laughs> and you think of all the things in your life that you think escaped the notice of God and certainly were not his will. God is God. And God is not bothering. God works through death. And there are many things that can never be accomplished with life that are perfectly accomplished through death. You ask me, I was once asked on an application form of some sort, what was the most important thing in my life that had happened to me? And I said the death of my three brothers growing up. I mean, you talk about a life changer. You grow up knowing that God is God and you're not. And that God's ways with us are unbelievably Difficult. But you also know that the greatest work that God does in us is through suffering. And that if we keep suffering at bay, we hold it off, we won't submit to it, we will not grow. 
in faith. We just simply won't. You know, how many of you would confess what I confess, which is you've never learned by having somebody tell you what not to do. You only learn by doing the thing you're told you shouldn't do. In other words, all of us grow most through the discipline of God. And that's how we most know he loves us, because he disciplines those he loves. And that's why my parents said they were never as sure of the love of God as when they walked away from the fresh grave of one of their children. You stay away from Rachel because she's now missing Glenn. And what do you miss if you avoid Rachel's suffering? What do you miss? You stay away from the nursing home. What do you miss when you stay away from the nursing home? You miss that Jesus says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first because in our society, the nursing home is last. You go in to see Sally and there are smells everywhere, right? And you go through the halls or the lobbies or the lunchroom and there are people drooling down the front. But you can take your hand and you can touch them on the cheek and rub them, and their face immediately beams. You just touch them on the shoulder, and the the thankfulness that comes out of the residence of nursing is unbelievable. You want to really have a trip, borrow some of the children in this church and take them in a nursing home with you. And then let the old people run their fingers through the children's hair. What What do we lose by being so firm in being glib, and talking, 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 doing Facebook. And we, we don't talk to Rachel and cry with her. We don't give her hugs. We don't talk to the widows and the orphans in their distress. We don't go to the nursing homes. And we certainly don't have a God that will take the lives of our children. And God certainly doesn't want us to marry a sinner. Be still and know that I am God. I am God. And so you can give your life to God. And you can especially give your life to God when you suffer. You're never as sure that you are in the path of victory as when you suffer. And your faith will grow with leaps and bounds. You all know I'm telling the truth. Be still and know that he is God. You're not. Selah. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. You know, this psalm was the psalm that when Luther would... Luther would hang with his friend Philip McNanthan. He would say to Philip, Philip, let's sing the 46th. And this song is the origin of a mighty fortress is our God. The battle hymn of the Reformation. And Luther lived on the edge of life and death all the time. 
And to this day, Martin Luther's name is absolutely slandered consistently by Roman Catholics. The things I've read in some of my Roman Catholic publications that they say of Martin Luther is mind-boggling. Come, Philip, let's sing the 46th. 